Istana. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, or In Me for short. I'm joined in this episode by a colleague and friend to talk about our socioeconomic status growing up and our experiences as a child of immigrants in the United States. Hey, y'all, I'm here with Dr. Sahoy Lee, who was my featured guest on episode 27, which is titled Taiwanese American and Me. She's here again on episode 46 to have a conversation with me about socioeconomic status. That's a more formal way of saying your money situation. While preparing for this conversation, I couldn't help but think, phone bill about 2G's flat, no need to worry, my accountant handles that, and my whole crew is lounging, celebrating every day, no more public housing. Thinking back on my one-room shack, now my mom pimps an act with minks on her back, and she loves to show me off, of course, smiles every time my face is up in the source. We used to fuss when a landlord dissed us, no heat, wonder why Christmas missed us. Birthdays was the worst days, now we drink champagne when we thirsty. Uh, damn right I like the life I live, because I went from negative to positive, and Dr. Lee is over here bobbing. I knew she would. <laughs> For anyone who knows, I just dropped some lines from Biggie Smalls' timeless hit, Juicy. It's a song I think about when I consider my own socioeconomic path to the present. And I know those who know the lyrics can relate. How's it going, Dr. Lee? Hello. Hello, Santa. Thank you so much for having me back on your show. No problem. Thank you for coming back. And thank you for remembering to call me by my stage name, which is Stena. S-T-E-N-A, y'all. My money situation is always tight. (laughs) Right. Like we say socioeconomic status. And for the longest time, you know, it took me till I got to college to really understand what that meant. And so I'm like, oh, your money situation, your finances. Okay, All right. Cool. So um, I will go back and forth between socioeconomic status and money situation. But y'all get where I'm going with this. I noted that you were the featured guest for the Taiwanese American and Me episode. And I encourage folks to listen to that episode if they haven't already or need a refresher about who you are. And something that came across in that episode was that you are first-generation college attendee and graduate who needed a significant scholarship to go to college because of your money situation, correct? Um, So I was an international student. So we did not qualify for any financial assistance. Um, Scholarships were not open to folks like myself. And in the institution where you and I work, international students, you know, pay full, full, full rate. Yeah. And that was my situation coming up um, until my international student status changed. Uh, What was also interesting in that is that I also didn't qualify for a lot of the merit scholarships, which I had my eye on. You know, I couldn't do the financial FAXA sort of um, support, but I was like, well, I'll try to get some merit scholarships perhaps in college. You may recall in our last last interview that I went to University of California, Irvine, big representation for folks with Asian descent. And so when I applied for merit scholarships, it was for, you know, all students by their scholarship standing. And some of the scholarships that were for students of color, there would be a little fine print that it didn't include those of Asian descent because we were not a quote-unquote minority on that campus. Oh. You know? So there was a lot of merit scholarships that I wanted to get after, couldn't. There are certainly government financial stuff that we couldn't do because we were international status. So uh, 
I needed a full ride um, situation, um, which I was able to get for graduate school. And that's very different than getting it through financial aid. So you had to pay out of pocket for college when you went to UC Irvine? Correct. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. We paid full ride at UC Irvine. I'm the youngest of four daughters. And it was a family commitment to put me through college. So much so that my father, I will always remember, my father sat all of us down and spoke to my sisters and I, and that we were all going to invest in me uh, getting to school. And so my sisters all worked and they all chipped in. So I remember each sister will get a check in to dad, (laughs) you know, and everybody, that's just how my tuition was paid. I didn't have to work though. My father's message to me was your job is to be a student. Oh, wow. Why were you the chosen one to be a student? Yeah, I don't know why it felt like that. And when I talked about my, when I talk about my story, it feels like that's the narrative. I wonder if perhaps they felt like um, I had a chance. So uh, at this American dream in a way that perhaps they themselves didn't see that they could, but we'll have to interview them to find out. But it was family commitment. And it wasn't just about my education. I think our family commitment of working together to make things work for us as a family ran across other this, other areas of our lives too, not just my education. Yeah. I'm thinking about the fact that financial aid wasn't available to international students. And, you know, you said your sisters worked, your father worked, your mother worked as well? Nope. My mom is a full-time stay-at-home mom. I mean, she... Probably worked the most out of all of us, but um, her job was being a mom at home. I'm assuming that taxes were taken out on your sisters and father for their work. Where I'm going with this is your sisters and your father were hardworking people who paid taxes, yet you could not get financial aid to go to the state school. That's a real injustice. Well, it's a little bit of a... um a look at our immigration system, right? So my father, my sisters were all, all on work visas. Um, some folks might understand that could be work visas that can work toward a green card. And that's what they did, right? Mm-hmm. For me, because I kept going the school track, my visa was student visa after student visa after student visa. It wasn't until I got my first job that my student visa shifted to a work visa. And five years later, I applied for a green card. Five years later, I applied to be a U.S. citizen. So that's been my immigration track. But all of my entire family became citizens before I did because I kept doing school, right? By the time, it mine were just years and years of schooling, whereas they've had a chance to work and five years later apply for a green card, five years later to get citizenship. So I was the last to get a citizenship in my family. Okay. And I'm understanding that you went to college first. Did any of them end up going subsequently? Yes. Okay. And completed their associate degrees and their bachelor degrees. Um, and then I'm the only one that went further to get my doctor, my master's and my doctorate. Got it. And remind us, what did you get your doctorate in? Uh, clinical psychology. Remember that, y'all, because I'm going to come back to that later in the episode. All right. So when did you come into your consciousness about your money situation? Oh, gosh. You know, our money situation was different when we were in Taiwan versus when we were in the States. Um, I moved here when I was 10 years old, when my early memories of us living in Taiwan was that we were rather comfortable. Um, I never had feelings of going without. I 
um, my mother's father and her eldest brother were all pediatricians. So in Taiwan, we were we were comfortable. My my father was successful and you know did his business stuff. As a little girl, I never felt like we didn't that we were different in any way, so to speak, or we lived without. So I was saying in, in, in Taiwan, I felt comfortable. My consciousness that money situation mattered uh, was when I came to the States. When I came to the States, uh, my family, and I, there's six of us. Um, after living with my uncle for quite a, period, a small period of time, if you remember from the other episode, um, we moved out on our own, a two-bedroom apartment. And things, it, and this is from moving to from a house in Taiwan, right, to a two-bedroom apartment um, in L.A., and I think that was when I started to realize that things were a little less comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the fact that my dad slept in the living room. So our living room was living room by daytime and dad's bedroom by nighttime. I remember helping him get the coffee table to the side and he'll lay out his sleeping bag or, you know, air mattress, whatever foam thing that he used to use. And that was where daddy slept. And we made that work until I was out of college. When I graduated from UC Irvine, we were still living in a two-bedroom apartment as a family of six. All right. So you're comfortable in Taiwan and came here to the United States. What precipitated the move to the United States, given the comfort in Taiwan? That old story of better education opportunity in American dream. I think that's definitely it. I also know that there's other more complicated family situation that have led to the departure for decision by my father, not so much by my mom. But my fault. My mom followed her husband and brought her kids over. So kudos to mom. I don't know how she did all that at her age at the time with four kids going to a foreign country. But your husband decided it was time to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a couple other stories that I'm not always privy to as the baby of the family to know what those conversations were like. But the big story is, and the story that was told to me was, this is so you guys can have a better opportunity. So I took that to heart. You know, so for me, coming to the States, as my dad would say, my job was to be a student and be successful. That's what I tried to do. Came with a lot of pressure. Came with a lot of, you know, you don't want to disappoint folks or let people down. And the way my sisters all contributed, as we talked about early in the beginning of the show. So there's a lot of pressure. Eminem said, you know. Okay. So success is an option if a failure is not. Yeah. And to me, that's something that I remember when I went to go defend my dissertation. That was the song that came on. Mm. Mm. Okay. <laughs> As I was rocking it. And I was like, this is a sign. Eminem's right. Success is an option, but failure is not. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I really held on to. You know, I'm thinking about a lot. You brought a lot to the forefront for me in your story. So my maternal grandmother, from what I understand, was the first to come to the United States. And she came here in 1966. When I asked my mom, did she know anybody here? She had like some friends who came and had set up a little bit, but no family, nothing. And had to work odd jobs to be able to then send back eventually for her kids. She left seven kids in Haiti mm. to come here to give her children a better life in another country, ultimately. My father came in 1971. 
And when I hear about his story, leaving his family and friends and everything he knows, I'm like, I can't even imagine doing that. Mm -hmm. Like I wrangle over leaving a job to go to a different state or even 45 minutes down the road. I couldn't imagine leaving everything I know behind, language, norms, and then coming to another country. So I thought about that. And um, also, you know, you're a psychologist. I'm like, what were they experiencing in being alone and not being able to talk to anybody about being alone? It's not like you could just pick up the phone back in the 60s and call somebody on a whim. I mean, you could, but right, there was right. a, a privilege to having a phone and being able to call long distance back home. So there was that. And then I also thought about the two bedroom situation and six people living in there. Um, I can relate to that part of your story. So early on in life, pretty comfortable living in a two bedroom, pretty spacious apartment. But it wasn't until I started really watching TV and paying attention that I realized I'm like, I don't think we have much. Mm. You know, I'm looking at these single family houses, cars, um, upstairs, downstairs. And I never, I think the first time I went into a single family house with an upstairs and downstairs in the United States, I was in like high school. Yeah. Um, so I can relate to that. And so was that your only cue that our money situation ain't right? Were there other things that led you to realize, yeah, we don't have much, but we have yeah. just enough? Yeah. I mean, there were, you know, we own one car. We always ate at home. A big treat for us was to pack all six of us in the car and go into Sizzlers. Mm. Do you, you know what Sizzlers? There was no Sizzlers in Mass. If I remember correctly, I don't, I don't, tell me about Sizzlers. Oh, it's like, you know, it's kind of like your equivalent to a little, maybe like an IHOP, you know, like a 24 hour joint. Right. But, um, but you get more, you can get your steak, you can get your lobster, you can get, you can get whatever you want at, at, at a Sizzler. And that was a big deal for us to eat out. Um, so that gave me a cue that eating out was not something that we can do easily as a family. Um, and and I'm I'm stuck in a war that you said you said um, that our our money situation wasn't right. I don't know if I ever thought that it wasn't right. I just felt like it was different. Yeah. I don't know if I judged it. I never felt embarrassed. I never felt um, less than. I think my dad wouldn't wouldn't have allowed us to ever feel that way. Um, we were very much rich in other things, and I never. I, it was just different. It wasn't less than. Um, sorry, I kind of got stuck on that word, but. Um, I used to collect cans with my dad. My dad would go and where he worked, there was like, um, he has access to, to pick up cans for recycling. And so that's what we would do every Saturday morning. My dad and I will go, we'll get his truckload of recycled goods that he's collected over the week and we'll go and we'll recycle. And I remember these little things that you, you put the recycling cans in and after a while they give you a little slit and you go to the grocery, you know, you go to the checkout mm -hmm. money. And that was like our routine. Um, and I remember, and I, and I credit my dad a lot to these things because he was subtle in the way he helped me find pride. So after every time we would go recycle on a Saturday um, and then we'll go to the grocery store and then he'll use that money and we'll buy something um, special, right? And then when we bring it home, he'll say that I did that, that I helped to bring that special fish home or I helped bring that special, you know, whatever sauce thing my mom needed for the whatever. And it was like a prideful thing. And so as a little girl, I was excited about Saturday morning. I was excited about recycling cans. I was excited about 
being able to get the money so I can feel good at the dinner table because I help with something. And I think that was his way of making sure that I felt pride in that instead of embarrassment. Now, as an adult brain that I have, I look at that and I'm like, ooh, were you afraid you were going to run into a friend? Were you going to, I didn't have any of that consciousness. I was just excited to go with my dad and get some money and buy something. So I credit him for kind of shielding me a little bit with that. Okay. So I should have spoken differently. There was a a long period in my life, I would say about the first 11 years where I didn't have a second thought about our money situation. When I felt like it wasn't right and I felt some stigma around not having as much was when my father was laid off by the state of Massachusetts from his job. He worked at a state hospital and the hospital closed down. And so, you know, now as an adult, I'm like, oh, you know, some jerk cut Um, funding for something. And then this is how it impacted us. Mm. Um, Likely Governor Weld, shout out to him. Not really. Governor Weld was our governor back in the early 90s. So um, when that happened, I noticed things changing um, significantly. So um, if my brother and I said we wanted a bike, we got a bike. Needed new sneakers, got new sneakers. We always had clothes on our back. Never hungry. Um, and I, I'll say that we were never hungry, even when things changed. But if I said I needed a pair of sneakers, mom would say, just wait a while. You know, in mm-hmm. a few weeks, mm-hmm. I'll do what I can to make sure you got the sneakers. And I got the cue that it wasn't easy for her to get the sneakers. And I say her, my mom, my mom and dad lived together. We were all together. But we know if we needed something, we went to mall. Yeah. And so my mom would um, eventually, whether it's three or four weeks later, come up with the money. Okay, here's the $45 you need for the sneakers. I don't want you having to ask anybody for money or being embarrassed. So the moment that seared in my memory where I was just like, man, things have changed, was when I went to stop and shop. I'll never forget it. And uh, my father gave me a, an envelope with some stuff in it. Thank you for tuning in to part one of our conversation. Be sure to tune in for the second part to hear the rest of what I have to say and to also hear from Dr. Lee about the way in which poverty affects neurological development. Until the next episode, keep reflecting. Identity and the Identity and me.